Section 15 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 11, American Founders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. John Adams, Part 3. With such conflicting views between these great undoubted patriots and statesmen, there were increasing alienations, ripening into bitter hostilities. If Adams was the more profound statesman, according to old-fashioned ideas, basing government on the lessons of experience and history, Jefferson was the more astute and far-reaching politician, foreseeing the increasing ascendancy of democratic principles. One would suppose that Adams, born on a New England farm and surrounded with Puritan influences, would have had more sympathy with the people than Jefferson, who was born on a Virginia plantation and accustomed to those social inequalities which slavery produces. But it seems that as he advanced in years, in experience and in honors, Adams became more and more imbued with aristocratic ideas. Like Burke, whose early career was marked for liberal and progressive views, but who became finally the most conservative of English statesmen, and recoiled from the logical sequence of the principles he originally advocated with such transcendent eloquence and ability. And Adams, when he became president, after rendering services to his country second only to those of Washington, became saddened and embittered. And even as Burke raved over the French Revolution, so did Adams grow morose in view of the triumphs of the democracy and the hopeless defeat of his party, which was destined never again to rally except under another name, and then only for a brief period. There was little of historic interest connected with the administration of John Adams as President of the United States. He held his exalted office only for one term, while his rivals were re-elected during the twenty-four succeeding years of our national history, all disciples and friends of Jefferson, who followed out the policy he had inaugurated. In general, Adams pursued the foreign policy of Washington, which was that of peace and non-interference. In domestic administration he made only ten removals from office, and kept up the ceremonies which were then deemed essential to the dignity of President. The interest in his administration centered in the foreign relations of the government. It need not be added that he sympathized with Burke's Reflections on the French Revolution, that immortal document which for rhetoric and passion has never been surpassed, and also for the brilliancy with which reverence for established institutions is upheld and the disgust hatred and scorn uttered for the excesses which marked the godless revolutionists of the age it is singular that so fair-minded a biographer as parton could see nothing but rant and nonsense in the most philosophical political essay ever penned by man it only shows that a partisan cannot be an historian any more than can a laborious collector of details like freeman accurate as he may be Adams, like Burke, abhorred the violence of those political demagogues who massacred their king and turned their country into a vile shambles of blood and crime. He equally detested the military despotism which succeeded under Napoleon Bonaparte, and the Federalists generally agreed with him. Even the farmers of New England, whose religious instincts and love of rational liberty were equally shocked. Affairs between France and the United States became then matters of paramount importance. Adams, as minister to Paris, had perceived the selfish designs of the Count de Virginay, and saw that his object in rendering aid to the new republic had been but to cripple England. And the hollowness of French generosity was further seen when the government of Napoleon looked with utter contempt upon the United States, whose poverty and feebleness provoked to spoliations as hard to bear as those restrictions which England imposed on American commerce. It was the object of Adams, in whose hands, as the highest executive officer, the work of negotiation was placed, to remove the sources of national grievances and at the same time to maintain friendly relations with the offending parties. 
and here he showed a degree of vigor and wisdom which cannot be too highly commended. The President was patient, reasonable, and patriotic. He curbed his hot temper and moderated his just wrath. He averted a war and gained all the diplomatic advantages that were possible. He selected envoys, both Federalists and Democrats, the ablest men of the nation. When Hamilton and Jefferson declined diplomatic missions in order to further their ambitious ends at home, who of the statesmen remaining were superior to Marshall, Pickney, and Jerry? How noble their disdain and lofty their independence when Talleyrand sought from them a bribe of millions to secure his influence with the first consul. Millions for defense, not a cent for tribute, are immortal words. And when negotiations failed, and there seemed to be no alternative but war, and that with the incarnate genius of war Napoleon, Adams, pacific as was his policy, set about most promptly to meet the exigency, and recommended the construction of a navy and the mustering of an army of 16,000 men, and even induced Washington to take the chief command once more in defense of America's institutions. Although at first demurring to Washington's request, he finally appointed Hamilton, his greatest political rival, to be the second general in command, a man who was eager for war and who hoped through war to become the leader of the nation as well as leader of his party. When, seeing that the Americans would fight rather than submit to insults and injustice, the French government made overtures for peace, the army was disbanded. But Adams never ceased his efforts to induce Congress to take measures for national defense in the way of construction of forts on the coast and the building of ships of war to protect commerce and the fisheries. In regard to the domestic matters which marked his administration, the most important was the enactment of the Alien and Sedition Laws, now generally regarded as federal blunders. The historical importance of the passage of these laws is that they contributed more than all other things to break up the federal party and throw political power into the hands of the Republicans, as the Democrats were still called. At that time there were over 30,000 French exiles in the country, generally discontented with the government. With them, liberty meant license to do and say whatever they pleased. As they were not naturalized, they were not citizens, and as they were not citizens, the Federalists maintained that they could not claim the privileges which citizens enjoyed to the full extent, that they were in the country on sufferance, and if they made mischief, if they fanned discontents, if they abused the President or members of Congress, they were liable to punishment. It must be remembered that the government was not settled on so firm foundations as at the present day. Even Jefferson wrought himself to believe that John Adams was aiming to make himself king and establish aristocratic institutions like those in England. This assumption was indeed preposterous and ill-founded. Nevertheless, it was credited by many Republicans. Moreover, the difficulties with France seemed fraught with danger. There might be war, and these aliens might prove public enemies. It was probably deemed by the Federalists, governing under such dangers, to be a matter of public safety to put these foreigners under the eyes of the executive, as a body to be watched, a body that might prove dangerous in the unsettled state of the country. The Federalists doubtless strained the Constitution and put interpretations upon it which would not bear the strictest scrutiny. They were bitterly accused of acting against the Constitution. It was averred that everybody who settled in the country was entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, according to the doctrine taught in the Declaration of Independence. And this was not denied by the Federalists so long as the foreigners behaved themselves. But when they gave vent to extreme liberal sentiments, like the French revolutionists, and became a nuisance, it was deemed right and a wise precaution to authorize the President to send them back to their own countries. Now it is probable that these aliens were not as dangerous as they seemed. They were ready to become citizens when the suffrage should be enlarged. Their discontent was magnified. They were mostly excitable but harmless people, unreasonably feared. 
Jefferson looked upon them as future citizens, trusted them with his unbounded faith in democratic institutions, and thought that the treatment of them in the alien laws was unjust, impolitic, and unkind. The sedition laws were even more offensive, since under them citizens could be fined and imprisoned if they wrote what were called libels on men in power, and violent language against men in power was deemed a libel. But all parties used violent language in that fermenting period. It was an era of the bitterest party strife. Everybody was misrepresented who even aimed at office. The newspapers were full of slanders of the most eminent men, and neither Adams nor Jefferson nor Hamilton escaped unjust criminations and the malice of envenomed tongues. All this embittered the Federalists, then in the height of their power. In both houses of Congress, the Federalists were in a majority. The executive, the judges, and educated men generally were Federalists. Men in power are apt to abuse it. It is easy now to see that the alien and sedition laws must have been exceedingly unpopular, but the government was not then wise enough to see the logical issue. Jefferson and his party saw it and made the most of it. In their appeals to the people, they inflamed their prejudices and excited their fears. They made a most successful handle of what they called the violation of the Constitution and the rights of man, and the current turned. From the day that the obnoxious and probably unnecessary laws were passed, the Federal Party was doomed. It lost its hold on the people. The dissensions and rivalries of the Federal leaders added to their discomfiture. What they lost, they could never regain. Only war would have put them on their feet again, and Adams, with true patriotism, while ready for necessary combat, was opposed to a foreign war for the purpose of domestic policy. Yet the ambitious statesman did not wish to be dethroned. He loved office dearly, and hence he did not yield gracefully to the triumph of the ascendant party, which grew stronger every day. And when their victory was assured and his term of office was about to expire, he sat up until twelve o'clock the last night of his term, signing appointments that ought to have been left to his successors. Among these appointments was that of John Marshall, his Secretary of State, to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, one that reflected great credit upon his discernment, in spite of its impropriety. For Marshall's name is one of the greatest in the annals of our judiciary. On the following morning, before the sun had risen, the ex-president was on his way to Braintree, not waiting even for the inauguration ceremonies that installed Jefferson in the chair which he had left so unwillingly, and giving vent to the bitterest feelings, alike unmanly and unreasonable. I have not dwelt on the minor events of his presidency, such as his appointments to foreign missions, since these did not seriously affect the welfare of the country. I cannot go into unimportant events and quarrels, as in the case of his dismissal of Pickering and other members of his cabinet. Such matters belong to the historians, especially those who think it necessary to say everything they can, to give minute details of all events. These small details, appropriate enough in works and written for specialists, are commonly dry and uninteresting. They are worrisome to the general reader, and are properly soon forgotten, as mere lumber which confuses rather than instructs. No historian can go successfully into minute details unless he has the genius of Macaulay. On this rock, Freeman, with all his accuracy, was wrecked. As an historian, he can claim only a secondary place, since he had no eye to proportion. In short, was no artist, like Froude. He was as heavy as most German professors, to whom one thing is as important as another. Accuracy on minute points is desirable and necessary, but this is not the greatest element of success in an historian. Some excellent writers of history think that the glory of Adams was brightest in the period before he became president, when he was a diplomatist, that as president he made great mistakes and had no marked executive ability. I think otherwise. 
it seems to me that his special claims to the gratitude of his country must include the wisdom of his administration in inverting an entangling war and guiding the ship of state creditably in perplexing dangers that in most of his acts while filling the highest office in the gift of the people he was patient patriotic and wise we forget the exceeding difficulties with which he had to contend and the virulence of his enemies what if he was personally vain pompous irritable jealous stubborn and fond of power these traits did not swerve him from the path of duty and honor nor dim the luster of his patriotism nor make him blind to the great interests of the country as he understood them the country whose independence and organized national life he did so much to secure all cavils are wasted and worse than wasted on such a man his fame will shine forevermore in undimmed luster to bless mankind small is that critic who sees the defects but has no eye for the splendors of a great career there is but little more to be said of Adams after the completion of his term of office. He retired to his farm in Quincy, a part of Braintree, for which he had the same love that Washington had for Mount Vernon and Jefferson for Monticello. In the placid rest of agricultural life and with comfortable independence, his later days were spent. The kindly sentiments of his heart grew warmer with leisure, study, and friendly intercourse with his townspeople. He even renewed a pleasant correspondence with Jefferson he took the most interest naturally in the political career of his son john quincy adams whom he persuaded to avoid extremes so that it is difficult to say with which political party he sympathized the most in medis tutissimus ibis in tranquil serenity the ex-president pondered the past and looked forward to the future his correspondence in the dignified retirement of his later years is most instructive showing great interest in education and philanthropy he was remarkably blessed in his family and in all his domestic matters the founder of an illustrious house eminent for four successive generations his wife who died in eighteen eighteen was one of the most remarkable women of the age his companion his friend and his counsellor to whose influence the greatness of his son john quincy is in no small degree to be traced adams lived twenty-five years after his final retirement from public life in eighteen o one surrounded by his children and grandchildren, dividing his time between his farm, his garden, and his library. He lived to see his son, President of the United States. He lived to see the complete triumph of the institutions he had helped to establish. He enjoyed the possession of all his faculties to the last, and his love of reading continued unabated to the age of 91, when he quietly passed away July 4, 1826. His last prayer was for his country, and his last words were, Independence forever authorities life of john adams by j t morse jr life of alexander hamilton by lodge parton's life of jefferson bancroft united states daniel webster oration on the death of adams and jefferson life of john jay by j flanders and whitelock fisk's critical period of american history sparks diplomatic correspondence of the american revolution reeves life of madison curtis's history of the constitution Scholler's History of the United States, McMaster's History of the People of the United States, Van Holst's Constitutional History, Pitkin's History of the United States, Horner's Life of Samuel Adams, Magruder's Marshall. End of section 15.